This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. This evening continue with the series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, which, as you know, begins with the Buddha's declaration that these four abidings of mindfulness are the direct path to the overcoming of dukkha, to the realization of Nibbana. So it's a very striking statement. This is the direct path for awakening. We've spoken of the basic definition of satipatthana and three of the four qualities of mind that we need to develop and strengthen to accomplish this goal of liberation. A bhikkhu, meaning anyone who undertakes this practice, a bhikkhu abides ardent clearly knowing and mindful. So we spoke at some length of these three different qualities. Tonight I'd like to speak of the last phrase in the definition and also go on to some of the specific instructions the Buddha gave for doing this practice. So a bhikkhu abides, a bhikkhu, that's us, abides, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So that's the fourth of the qualities that we need to cultivate, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So this refers, freedom from desire and discontent, refers to the quality or the mental mental factor of concentration, of samadhi. Now, samadhi means the composure or the unification of mind. And as we know from those times when our minds have been concentrated, when we've settled in to that stillness, when samadhi is present, 
it brings about a great sense of inner ease, of contentment, of calm. At those times, we are abiding free of desire and discontent because of the force of the concentration. There are different ways of developing and strengthening this quality of samadhi. Ajahn Suchito, who many of you know, disciple of Ajahn Sumedho and an abbot of one of the uh, monasteries in England, he described the development of samadhi, described it as developing naturally, enjoying embodied presence. So it's not something in this regard that's something we have to struggle for, but rather to allow it to develop naturally through enjoying embodied presence, which means settling back into our bodies, settling back into the moment, allowing all the tensions and the knots, all the stresses of the body naturally unwind, naturally unravel. It's as if when we create the space of awareness, when we create the space of mindful presence, the mind settles by itself into a place of concentration because we're simply being present for that which arises. We're aware of what's presenting itself moment after moment. And in this regard, the development of samadhi is also a great healing process because we're allowing for the untying of the knots. I just want to read something from Ajahn Suchito in his kind of description of this natural way of allowing samadhi to develop. He said, receiving joy is another way to say enjoyment, that is receiving joy. And samadhi is the art of refined enjoyment. It is based on skillfulness. It is the careful collecting of oneself into the joy of the present moment. Joyfulness means there's no fear, no tension, no ought to. There isn't anything we have to do about the moment. It's just this. It's kind of a very gentle approach in the development of concentration. It's receiving joy, the joy of the present moment. When we practice in this way, when we practice this quality of receptiveness, one of the things that we discover, which is not intuitively obvious, is that even unpleasant sensations or emotions can be the source of happiness. One point when I was in India practicing with Manindraji, uh, we were sitting in a chai shop in the bazaar of uh, Bodh Gaya. And I was just having uh, a lot of headache. I was having a lot of tension in my head at that time in my practice. Uh, and it was still going on even when I wasn't, when I wasn't sitting. So we were sitting there and I was just describing to him 
kind of this intense uh, head pressure and head pain. And the only thing he said to me was, I hope you are enjoying it. <laughs> and it was such a novel idea <laughs> that it might be possible to enjoy the head pressure and enjoy the painful feeling. But I think maybe you have some sense, you know, if you're all experienced practitioners, that when we are in this receptive mode, a careful collecting of oneself into the joy of the present moment, when we're not fighting with things, and we're just open, we're just receiving, the mind settles into this very natural one-pointedness, natural concentration, and there is a kind of joy and a kind of contentment whether the particular object is pleasant or unpleasant. So this is a great strength in our practice because we're no longer engaged in such a struggle. So what does it mean to say samadhi is based in skillfulness? It means that the development of concentration rests on the foundation of ethical conduct. It rests on the foundation of sila. Because without this strong commitment to non-harming, non-harming ourselves, non-harming others, what happens? We get involved in all kinds of actions, either of body, of speech, of mind, and plenty in our own minds, And it causes a lot of agitation, it causes regret, it causes worry when we're doing unskillful things. And it becomes impossible for the mind to settle, to become concentrated. Now one of the strengths of sila, in the practice of sila, is that it bears fruit from the time we commit to it. So it's not supposing that we all need to have led completely blameless lives in order to develop concentration. Because we've all done, we've all had this mix of wholesome and unwholesome actions. But from the time we commit to a life of sila, that provides the foundation, that provides the stability. Now in the world, as we're all familiar with, this practice of sila basically means following the five basic precepts, which we just chanted. But on retreat, the practice of sila can get further refined. And it's one of the beauties of retreat that we can see the possibilities for deepening our understanding of what non-harming means. On my last retreat here in February, I was sitting and my yogi job was putting out tea and then putting the tea things away. Now one tea time, one of the cooks had kind of made this little special treat of homemade cheese tortillas. And they were really good. And then as you know, and kind of a treat is put, except for those of you on a precepts, uh, treat is put out at tea time. It's like the big event of the day. 
So I was just enjoying these cheese tortillas, and then tea was over, and I put it away. That's all. I thought I had just enjoyed it and let go of it. But the next day, as I was doing my yogi job, I go into the kitchen, and I see on the counter just a, a container with the leftover cheese tortillas. And the thought in my mind, the rationalization in my mind was, well, I'm sure nobody would mind if I just took some. My yogi job allows me to be in the kitchen, you know, and if I just take a few tortillas, which I proceeded to do. And just even as I was doing it, I felt a little guilty. <laughs> you, know, some, you know, and I'm kind of furtively looking over my shoulder if anybody was going to come in and see me. And I realized in the moment and then afterwards, as I was reflecting on it, was that obviously it was not a big deal on the one hand. And on the other hand, it really was a taking of what wasn't offered. And I kind of appreciated the deepening sense of attentiveness, even if it was a little after the fact. Of course, after the retreat, I then went and confessed to the cooks my misdemeanor. So refinement of sila. There's another example of how we can work with it. In the ongoing saga of the window wars, you know, people have different desires, different needs. Some people like the windows open. Some people like the windows closed. It took us 20 years at the retreat center to figure out kind of policy that seemed to work somewhat, right? Some kind of compromise which allowed for the varying needs. So I think it's helpful in a communal situation like this to consider the fact that our own needs and desires are not necessarily paramount. They're part of the mix, but they're not the whole mix. And so to work with whatever kind of the policy is now and whatever it might evolve into, you know, through your input, you're welcome to offer your suggestions along the way to the staff, not to each other. But the deeper meaning of it is that it means that we take care with our actions. You know, are we harming ourselves? Are we harming others? Even in the way of just causing a lot of agitation, a lot of thought. Can we give certain things up? Tell a little Sarah story. After my retreat here, you know, we all have our food preferences. Well, I really like the green olives a lot better than the black olives, you know, that are put out. But the time that I was here, for some reason, like almost all the time were the black olives. You know, so after the retreat, I was talking with Sarah, and I was just commenting, you know, we really have to do something to get more green olives <laughs> put out. <laughs> yeah, they have a little... They have a little spiciness to them, a little kick. And she just looked at me with, (laughs) I hope, compassion (laughs) and great wisdom and said, Joseph, 
you're going to have to give up a lot more than olives. <laughs> and it was a very good reminder. <laughs> So with this foundation of sila, and again, in the obvious ways of the precepts, but in the more refined ways that we can really work with when we're on retreat, the mind more easily settles into this happy, relaxed state, which is the happiness is the proximate cause of concentration. You know, there's so much talk in Dharma talks and in the Buddha's teachings about dukkha and the different kinds of suffering, and we all have so much experience of it. But I think we sometimes forget (coughs) that the path of practice is the path of happiness. In fact, the Buddha talked of seven kinds of happiness. (coughs) And concentration, samadhi, is the third. Like after the happiness of human sense pleasures and heavenly sense pleasures, greater than that is the happiness of samadhi, of concentration. Higher than that is the happiness of insight. And then the happiness of awakening, and the different stages of awakening. So we don't want to undervalue or gloss over the power of happiness. It's actually where the path is leading and is itself the foundation or the cause for concentration to arise. So we establish the foundation of sila because it creates a kind of ease in our mind, a kind of happiness in our mind. On the basis of that, we develop the concentration through the continuous presence of mindfulness, of well-established mindfulness. That's how we develop concentration, through the continuous presence of well-established mindfulness. And we do, do this in one of two ways. The first is through a directed awareness onto a particular, a single object. You know, so when we work with the breath, or we work with the sensations of the movement in a step, or we work with the sound, we're just letting the mind stay steady, even in a very receptive way. We can be receiving it, just like the radio receives a radio signal on a particular station. We can tune in to a particular station the breath station or the step station. So it can stay very receptive, but also very precise. We're feeling it or we're experiencing that object steadily, exactly, precisely, in a very relaxed way, in an open way, in a receiving way. The second approach, the second way, is not through this directed awareness, steadiness on a single object, but rather a more choiceless awareness, where we're settling back and just open 
to what, whatever is arising at any of the six sense doors. The mind can get very concentrated on changing objects. You know, and that kind of samadhi is called kanika or momentary samadhi. Our practice is the skillful interweaving of these two approaches. It's not one or the other. We want to use directed and undirected, or directed and choiceless awareness, interweaving them in our practice. And the Buddha recommended this, this interweaving. Now in one sutta, he said that it's good to focus on a single object when the mind is either sluggish or distracted. Because by developing the one-pointedness, the concentration on a single object, it allows the mind to come back to that place of calm, that place of serenity, kind of a space of internal joy. And so then when the mind is collected, again collected, we open it up to a choiceless awareness. Now, some of you are doing jhana practice, and that's just one way of developing the the one-pointedness and then using it, you can use the jhana practice to then open up in a choiceless way to all the changing objects. But for for any of us doing our practice, whether it's the formal jhana practice or not, we can get a very intuitive feel When do we need to be one-pointed on a single object? When do we open up? And to begin to trust that movement, that flow between the two. And there's one simple guideline. If one approach is not working, try the other one. (laughs) And just see, okay, which is appropriate now. But I want to add an addendum to that. Even when things seem to be working, right? when the mind does seem concentrated and, and it's effortlessly flowing, it's still helpful to alternate between the two because it strengthens the concentration. It, it stabilizes the concentration. So really play with these two approaches. When I first went to India, after the Peace Corps, and after wandering around looking for a teacher and ending up in Bodh Gaya with Manindraji, I had no concentration at all. Just my mind very distracted with a lot of thought. I loved to think about things and spent a good deal of time doing so. But over the years, over the many years of practice, There have been a few particular things that really helped me in the development of samadhi as a mental quality. So I just wanted to share these particular uh, tools of practice that were so helpful for me. And you can play with them and experiment. Many of them um, you have been working with, I'm sure. A very big help was
in practicing, as I moved about, going from the more superficial awareness of knowing I was moving to actually feeling the sensations in the movement. So when we're reaching for something, for example, we can know that our arm is reaching, which is being mindful. It's, we're present. We're not, we're not absent-minded. But a deeper, more concentrated level would be not simply to know that I'm reaching, but to feel the many, many sensations within that one movement. That's the embodied presence that Ajahn Suchito was talking about. And I found that it made a huge difference in the quality of my connection with what was arising with experience throughout the day. That's one thing which I would recommend greatly. Second, and this, if you like, you can, you can try, at times, doing six-part walking. You know, generally we talk of the, the walking meditation, the slowest is in the three-part of lift, move, place. But at a certain point, Sayadaw's Upandita suggested that I do six-part walking. And what that, and that's involved with is there's the lifting and then dividing the moving forward into two sections. So it's lifting, you could say move, and then the swing of the, of the leg. You can find whatever note is, is appropriate for you. So it's lift, move, swing, and then the lowering, the placing when, when you first touch, and then the stepping or the pressing. Okay, so it's lift, move, swing, lower, place, step. What I found was that this made a huge difference in the level of my concentration. Because even when I was doing the slower walking in lift, move, place, in some way that I wasn't aware of, I was still leaning forward a little bit. I was kind of lifting in order to get to the end. And I wasn't aware of it. I thought I was really being mindful and present. When I did the six-part walking, it just helped me drop back, settle back more completely. It's just something to play with, you know, a, a possibility for you. Practicing the mindfulness of small things, the movement of one's hands, the shifting of posture, the mindfulness of intention. It takes a lot of mindfulness with the subsequent deepening of concentration to really pay attention to the intentions. So just as a um, question to hold in your mind, and you could report on it in your next interview if you like, notice whether you are aware of more intentions or unaware of more. Which is the bigger pile? And just holding that question in mind, I think, may help 
to just see how many intentions through the day you can notice. It very much refines the quality of the attention. A technique that Goenka, Goenkaji used, which was very powerful, at times difficult, uh, but tremendously strengthening of the samadhi, was what he called vow hours. You know, with certain hours during the day, we would take the vow not to move. You know, let me die. I'm not going to move. And sometimes it felt like one was dying. But the strength of that intention for stillness made all of those small movements and adjustments that we normally do, which can be distracting in a certain way, it just stilled it. And the result was that the mind got very, very concentrated. Well, in our upper middle path mode, we've softened it a little bit and really make it as a, a sliding scale, a sliding scale of vow. If you want to do a vow hour, great. If you want to do an, a vow 45 minutes, a vow 30 minutes, a vow 15 minutes, just to start playing with whatever time frame feels like it will be challenging and doable, work with it. See what happens with that intention. Another technique which is very helpful for strengthening the concentration is continuity of noting. Now, some of you may use the noting practice quite regularly. Others may not use it at all. For those of you who are not using it particularly, you might just take 10-minute periods, 15-minute periods, occasionally through the day, and just note everything in that 10 or 15 minutes. You know, you're opening a door, intending to reach, reaching, touching, pushing, lowering, stepping, that kind of continuous noting. Even doing it for 10 or 15 minutes at a time, several times a day, will reveal a lot about the quality of your attention, of your mindfulness. And it's a way of just dropping in to a more continuous presence of mind. It can be done with tremendous lightness. You know, it doesn't have to be done with a, with a heavy hand. But it begins to develop a certain impeccability of awareness. Okay, so these are just some of the things that over the years I've practiced at different times, all of which were helpful to really strengthen this quality of concentration. Now, one of the great gifts of increasing samadhi is that it overcomes the force of desire and lust and craving because it opens us to more refined pleasures of the mind. 
When we're concentrated, sense pleasures have very little allure because the quality of joy, the quality of ease is so much greater. And so it really helps, the strength of the concentration helps to keep out the intrusion of the hindrances. It's like building this fence in the mind and the hindrances are kept at bay. So the mind gets very purified at that time. As we practice, and as the level, the default level of concentration in our mind increases, and this is what happens, and it, it's, it's one of the joys, I think, of reflecting back on our practice over many years, because I've certainly seen it in myself, compared to how my mind was when I began. And we see that the basic level of concentration that we live with, not only on retreat but in the world, actually increases. And so we live in the world from a place of much greater peace, much greater ease. As we know, samadhi and concentration is not the final goal of the practice. So the Buddha was very clear about this. It's not what could be called the heartwood of the Bodhi tree. It's not freedom itself. But we should not undervalue the tremendous importance, the tremendous role it plays on this path to freedom. And the Buddha emphasized this. He said something quite striking. He said that it was lack of respect, or that it will be lack of respect for concentration, which is one of the causes for the disappearance of the Dhamma in the world. So it's it's a very striking statement, that lack of respect for concentration will be one of the causes for the disappearance of the realization of the Dhamma in the world. I think this is a particularly important statement in the transmission of the Dharma to the West. Because as we know, in our Western culture, we so much want everything to be instant. our, Our cultural attention span is pretty minimal. We even want enlightenment, awakening to be instant. We often don't want to put in the time and the effort and the sustained application necessary to strengthen this faculty of concentration, of samadhi. One of the visions for establishing the forest refuge was precisely this recognition. It kind of has a sangha in the West that there was this great need for a place where people could practice in an uninterrupted way for extended periods of time, to give ourselves time to really develop and nurture and mature these qualities. I want to read something from the Dalai Lama, and I'm not sure whether it would be encouraging or discouraging, (laughs) uh, but I like it. (laughs) 
anyway. He said, within a short time span, it is impossible to change all our concepts or the entire attitude of our mind. It needs constant application. Speaking from my own small experience, from the age of about 16 or 17, I began to make some serious effort to change and improve my outlook. Now at 55, which was some years ago, some 39 years have gone by. Several decades have passed, yet still the result is not satisfactory. We do have to struggle and to work hard, and that is the reality. Well, if this is the Dalai Lama, we may have a different idea of his progress. But I think it's pointing to something important for us. You know, that this is a vast undertaking, this path of awakening, of genuine freedom. And we need to put all the pieces in place. And the Buddha is saying this in this definition of Satipatthana, when he's talking about abiding with a mind free of desire and discontent. That means with with a mind that has established itself in concentration. So this completes, for now anyway, the part on the opening declaration. This is the direct path for the realization of Nibbana, about the definition of the four abidings of mindfulness and the qualities we need, abiding ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful free from desire and discontent in regard to the world. In the sutta, the Buddha then goes on to describe in a fair amount of detail the four mindful abidings. And a phrase that's used, it's not used in the sutta itself, but in some of the commentaries, it's a word that I like. Uh, He calls them the four gochara. Gochara is Pali for pastures. And so the Buddha is saying, these are the four appropriate pastures for the grazing of our mind. Right? It's the pasture of the body, of feelings, of the mind, and of dhammas. And as he goes through each of these four abidings, the body, feelings, mind, and dhammas. In the sutta, he describes quite a few different techniques for each one of these. So by the end of the sutta, as he describes different techniques for the development of each of these abidings in mindfulness, there's this amazingly comprehensive map, comprehensive picture, of how we practice this path of awakening. It's very complete. Different teachings, different techniques, different traditions of Vipassana may emphasize one or another of these these instructions. So some may emphasize the body in one or another of the the ways listed. Some techniques may emphasize feelings or 
mind states. Any one of them is sufficient to bring us to liberation because each one, no matter which way we practice, opens the door to all the others. And we'll see that more and more clearly as we go through uh, the various methods. But before going into that, there's one other element of the sutta that stands out by virtue of its frequency of repetition. And that is a refrain that occurs 13 different times. The same refrain occurs 13 different times in the sutta, and it follows every specific meditation instruction. So it's worth paying attention to this refrain. The Buddha is saying, this is how you practice in each of these four abidings. The Buddha is really reminding us of the essential features of the practice. So I want to read the refrain, and I'll read it with respect to the body. But remember, it's repeated. The same refrain is repeated after each instruction that he gives. And then we'll just go through it a little bit to explore what he means. Okay, so the Buddha says, In this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, or one abides contemplating the body externally, or one abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or one abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. The reason that I've enjoyed going through the sutta in this way is because, as I mentioned early on, for myself anyway, in reading this, could easily just have my eyes glance over this paragraph because it's so repetitious. You know, okay, he said that, let me... Let me go on contemplating the body internally, contemplating externally, contemplating both internally and externally. And it's so easy not to pay attention. You know, what does this mean? The Buddha's, the Buddha's saying something here, and we need to really understand it. Okay, contemplating internally is obvious because it's mostly how we practice. It's the present moment awareness of what's arising in the mind, in the body. 
So I want to give more attention to what it means to contemplate externally. Because there's some interesting aspects of that that we don't normally emphasize very much. We don't make explicit. Contemplating externally, contemplating the body externally means being mindful of the bodily actions of others when that's what draws our attention. Being mindful of the bodily actions of others instead of our usual tendency just to judge or react when we see people doing various things. You know, and just reflect on your, your own experience. You're, you're contemplating internally, really paying attention, and then something catches your eye. You, know, you see somebody doing something. What's the first response to that? Are we simply resting in awareness of that other person's bodily action, being mindful that that's what's happening? Or does the mind jump in? You know, with a judgment, with a comment, with a reaction. Can we stay mindful that the other person is walking or eating or doing their yogi job without getting lost in our thoughts of, oh, they're walking too fast, they're walking too slow, they're being careful, they're not being careful. You know, it's all, all of that mental proliferation. There's one very ironic and uh, just pattern of mind that I've noticed in myself when I'm on retreat. And it's, it happens a lot as I'm moving around or in the dining room. And I'll see someone, and my mind will jump in with some comment about how they're not being mindful, you know, at least what appears to me that they're not being mindful, totally missing that in that very moment, my mind is doing what I'm commenting about the other person. That is being completely unmindful. And then usually, you know, it doesn't take too long to, to catch that and just see the ridiculousness of it. You know, the, mind, the mind's just jumping in, losing its own continuity of awareness, its own presence of mind in the comment, in the judgment. So by practicing this very simple mindfulness of the body externally, so we actually make that a practice, it really protects our minds from the arising of, of these different kalesas. We actually are able to sustain the continuity of our own awareness because we're encompassing the external as well. From the other side, have you noticed at times that when you are aware of someone else moving very mindfully, you know, really being careful, that when we're just aware of that other person moving so carefully, it actually induces a state of stillness in ourselves. 
the other person's concentrated attention, when we're mindfully aware of it, becomes the cause of our own deepening concentration. So this is, this is really a wonderful thing to see, and it's why the Buddha, in part, recommended that we hang out with people who are mindful, with people who are concentrated and collected, rather than restless and agitated. And so in this way, when we understand the effect of others, when we're contemplating externally, when we recognize the effect of others, on our practice, we really see that the way we practice ourselves, the more careful, the more mindful, the more attentive we are, it is a gift to everyone else. It is actually helping everyone else be more mindful and concentrated. There's another example of mindfully attending to the actions of others. And this is verbal actions. And this particular teaching has been extremely powerful for me because it's a way of understanding both how our minds react to the verbal actions of others and it points to other possibilities. So I want to read this. This is from a sutta called the simile of the saw. And this is just one small part of it. Where the Buddha is talking about mindfulness of speech, but not mindful of our own speech, rather mindful of the speech of others. So this is practicing mindfulness externally. He said, bhikkhus, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or connected with harm, spoken with a mind of love and kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Here in bhikkhus, you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. That is a very powerful practice. Because what the Buddha is saying, instead of our usual habituated reaction and judgment of other people's speech, It's staying mindful. Yes, this speech is true or it's not true. It's gentle or it's not gentle. It's timely or it's untimely. It's motivated by love or motivated by ill will. We are abiding in mindfulness, which allows us, with practice, this is not an easy practice, to remain unaffected. uttering no unskillful words, abiding compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. This is what comes from mindfulness of external actions. So there's a lot. This, this is a whole arena for us of practice.
And just as with bodily or verbal actions, we can also contemplate feelings internally and externally, feelings and mind states. The more we can be mindful of the mind states and feelings as they arise in others, mindful externally, we stay much more sensitive to what's happening in the other person and we get less caught up in our judgments and reactions. Being mindfully externally, mindful of the feelings and mind states arising in others, also helps us, can help us, be more aware of our own motivations, our own feelings, either because they resonate, we see something similar, or by way of contrast. So I'll give you an example. Quite a few years ago, maybe four years ago or so, five, I was at a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, Trappist Abbey. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama was there, and there were, there were 25 Buddhists and 25 Christians. There was a lot of discussion you know, about all kinds of things, about Christian doctrine and Buddhist doctrine. And I found my mind sometimes engaged, sometimes just disengaged or commenting about various things that were said. And then at the end of it, the abbot of the abbey, the abbot of Gethsemane Abbey, said that the thing that most touched him during the whole conference was one day as we were all leaving the chapter room, just outside, as we were leaving it, there was, a, there was an image, a statue of Mary, and that as the Dalai Lama passed the statue, he stopped and bowed. And it was something that in a million years wouldn't have occurred to me to do. You know, I was just kind of walking right by, never really giving thought to, okay, well, what does that mean? What does it represent? Is it something I could bow to? You know, and the Dalai Lama, and this was completely, he wasn't doing it for anybody. You know, he didn't even know somebody was noticing, just out of his own kind of sense of wisdom and compassion and respect and reverence and devotion. It was just the natural thing for him to do. And more than anything else, that's what was meaningful, more than any of the words that were said. And so that's a way of being mindful externally of other people's motivations or other people's feelings, sometimes by way of contrast with our own, it illuminates our own minds, our own hearts. We see other possibilities. This emphasis on 
being mindful internally and externally really helps to keep things in balance. You know, because we don't become so self-absorbed or self-centered in our practice. And it helps weaken the tendency towards yogi mind. You know, where just things in our own minds can get so exaggerated as if, you know, the particular thought we're having or the particular feeling we're having suddenly becomes the center of the universe. This balance, mindfully, internally, mindfully, externally, it keeps things more, more in harmony. It also keeps us attuned to how our actions are affecting others. You know, because there's a danger, especially in a situation like this where there's so much emphasis on being mindfully internally, unless we open it up in this way a little bit, we can be going, you know, through the day doing things that may be affecting others and we're not paying attention. We're not aware of it. So it's a powerful practice for living in community like this, and it's obviously a powerful practice for living in the world. So the last part of the last part of the first part of the refrain, contemplating internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Venerable Analayo, in in the book that I've been uh, working with for these talks, the Satipatthana, uh, he has a very interesting uh, suggestion for what this means, both internally and externally. And rather than meaning just just a repetition, you know, of the two, He's suggesting that what this means is that we consider experience not to be either one's own or someone else's, but seen just as an objective experience. So, for example, it's the difference between I feel a pleasant feeling. That's the internal. He or she is experiencing a pleasant feeling, a pleasant mind state. That's external there is a pleasant feeling. That's the internal and external. That's both. Where we're just seeing objectively, not claiming ownership, either for oneself or others. When we contemplate in this way, the boundaries of self and other begin to dissolve. It's the experience of what's arising without any sense of ownership at all. And in this sense, it's the doorway to anatta, selflessness. And it's this jewel of emptiness, this understanding of emptiness, that things are not owned by anyone, that manifests in our lives as bodhicitta, That is the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all. This is something that Dugo Kensei Rinpoche said, which is just so deeply to the point. 
He said, when you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. When we recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So we begin to see that compassion is the activity of emptiness. So next week, as we continue through the sutta, talk about the next instruction in the refrain. First instruction is contemplate internally, contemplate externally, contemplate both internally and externally. The next instruction in the refrain is one that leads to a deeper understanding of no-self, a deeper understanding of emptiness. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.